Welcome to Raising It, a podcast series by Noble Ambition that shares the extraordinary stories of mega gifts and multi-million dollar philanthropy campaigns from the leaders who delivered them. During the past decade in Australia, we've seen more record-breaking multi-million dollar gifts announced than ever before. These gifts have transformed the charitable sector for the benefit of communities everywhere. But while we celebrate the philanthropists associated with these gifts, the stories of how these gifts came into being often remain untold. Raising It takes you behind the scenes to hear directly from the individuals who made these campaigns happen. We'll meet amazing leaders committed to achieving their noble ambitions through philanthropy, in education, health, marriage equality, climate change and more, and hear how they galvanize boards, teams and donors into making the impossible possible. The host of this series is me, Melissa Smith, founder and CEO of Noble Ambition, with almost 20 years experience in philanthropy and fundraising, and Australia's only global fundraiser of the year. I hope that by sharing these stories of inspiring leadership, we can encourage others to achieve their own noble ambitions. Our first episode of the Raising It series is a particularly special one for me. Having been personally involved in a community of extraordinary women who work together to endow one of Australia's greatest literary prizes for women's writing, the Stella Prize. As a board member and chair of Stella's fundraising committee, I was able to play a role in Stella's 10-year anniversary campaign, and my colleagues have been generous enough to join me today to relive the exciting, and at times nail-biting, 10 months it took to achieve something few thought possible. It is my pleasure to welcome to the podcast Jacqueline Booten, Executive Director of Stella, Karen Murray, Chair of the Stella Board, and Paula McLean, Stella Patron and former Deputy Chair. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining the series. In July 2021, Stella, a tiny but mighty organization that advocates for a fairer and more equitable society by celebrating women and non binary authors, was gearing up for its 10th anniversary prize in April 2022 and made the decision to use that milestone to try and endow the prize forever. We needed $3 million to endow the prize, and had already secured $1 million through fundraising since 2016. So we had 10 months to raise the remaining $2 million. They had 10 months, a great name, committed donors, an army of advocates of writers, publishers, and readers, but had only ever managed to raise just over $400,000 in operating each year. This is the extraordinary story of bold female-led philanthropy, how to galvanise a community and bravely ask for what you need on behalf of Australian female and non-binary writers and readers for generations to come. All right, now I'm going to begin this conversation with you, Jack, if I may, as Executive Director of Stella. Before we get into what Stella is and why it's important, tell me first, what has drawn you to books? Why are these important to you in your life? Oh, it's such a lovely question. I have been a reader my whole life and I was taught to read by my mother the year before I started school. I was eager to go to school. I was too little to start in the year that we thought I would be going. And so she had me home for an additional year and she didn't know what to do with me. So to keep herself busy and to keep me busy, she taught me to read. And books have therefore been kind of the the thread through my entire life. I read voraciously, I read widely, and I endlessly recommend books to other people. So Stella is a a real heart project for me in that way. It connects right to that very sense of who I am as, as a book person. 
That's lovely. Tell me, why is Stella so important to the Australian literary landscape? Stella has a fairly simple goal, really, which is to recognise, support and promote Australian women's writing. That shouldn't be contentious. Women write fantastic books. Women make up the majority of the reading public in this country. And yet, 10 years ago, what we were seeing is that women weren't being recognised with major literary prizes. Women weren't being recognised with book reviews in the pages of our newspapers. And Australian women writers weren't receiving equal attention in the school curriculum. So despite the great quality and variety of Australian women's writing, it was being ignored. There was either an unconscious bias going on or at worst, overt sexism in the industry. And Stella set out to change that. Seems like a simple goal, except of course, cultural change is long and slow. And so the work we do now really is about driving a different future for the country by really celebrating women's voices and the books that that Australian women and non-binary writers are putting out. It's a pretty compelling case. Karen, as chair, I'd like to invite you into this conversation now. Could you just tell me from the board's perspective, where in July 2022, so essentially nine years in for Stella, where was the organisation out from a board perspective? How was it tracking? Look, Stella had achieved a huge amount in that time. We'd seen major changes in the prize lists of other literary prizes. We'd seen books being added to school curriculums by Australian women writers and and redressing that balance. And at that point, we saw the count of book reviews that we conduct annually approaching parity. But what we found was while there'd been a lot of enthusiasm at the start of Stella and a lot of support, continuing that year-on-year fundraising really wasn't sustainable and we couldn't keep asking the same people to do that. Back in 2016, the board recognised the need for an endowment to ensure that Stella continued for future generations of women writers and readers, and they determined to raise an endowment of $3 million over 10 years. In the first few years of that, we had the support of our patrons, the McLean Foundation and the Koshlin Innovation Fund, which kick-started that endowment with a matched funding pledge. And that generated a really great response. But by 2020, it was really clear to the board that the Stella Forever Fund, our endowment, had plateaued at approximately a million dollars and we were no longer on track to meet our 10-year target. So it was doing some really important things in terms of its programs, but the actual funding base was challenging as many arts organisations and many charitable organisations have found. Can you tell me though, on a personal note, Karen, why is Stella so important to you? Yeah, I go back to similarly to Jacqueline. My mother was an English teacher and also a school librarian. And so books were always part of my life. I grew up in a very small country town in New South Wales and having access to those stories really connected me to a much wider world and made me see what was possible and made me want to join that wider world as, as an adult. And Stella's continued that love of books and connection with other people through books and through the organisation itself, which is an extraordinary community of both men and women who are really committed to raising the profile and celebrating Australian women's writing. Thank you, Karen. It was about this time, I think it was perhaps May or so last year, you and I first began a conversation as possibly joining the board of Stella. And you asked me at that time, why are books important to your life? The very question I'm turning back to both of you. And I reflected, I had the wonderful pleasure of studying English literature at university. Books have always been my constant companion through life. And as I was reflecting back, most of those books I study at university were mostly written by men. And I have two young girls and I want their stories and their voices and the voices of women writers to be just as prominent in all that we read going forward. 
And it was this opportunity to join the board and help create some of that change at a board role was really very, very exciting. And I remember having these conversations with yourself and with Jack and with Paula, who I'll introduce in a moment, about the important work Stella is doing. But as I was looking at the finances, as I was looking at the donor list, I saw great potential and a big gap. And that big gap to me struck me that in 10 years that was going to be approaching in the year's time, we had to really see if we could land that endowment figure. But that meant that we needed to raise $2 million in 10 months, more than the organization had ever done before. But to me, what struck me as really important with anniversaries is that if you can connect an endowment, which is incredibly difficult to raise money for, to a significant milestone, you can really galvanize a community around it. So in July 2021, when I had my first board meeting as a member of the board and chair of the fundraising committee meeting, You will recall, Karen and Jack, I proposed a little idea that then grew into something big. Karen, what was that idea and what was the board's response to it, if you may? So, as always, Melissa's ideas are ambitious and bold. The idea was that we would use our 10th Stella Prize, which was coming up in 10 months' time at the end of April 2022, as the finish line for raising the final $2 million towards the endowment. And I would say in terms of the board's reaction, I'd say initially we were a little bit uh, uncertain. <laughs> it was always a juggle for Stella between operational fundraising and fundraising for the endowment. And I guess there was a concern that by focusing on the endowment, would we cannibalise our operational funding? It also just felt like a huge target when we typically raised approximately $400,000 a year to tick that up <laughs> by fivefold to <laughs> $2 million. And personally, I had no experience of fundraising campaigns and certainly nothing on this scale. So there wasn't a huge depth of experience in this area on the board apart from Melissa. But there was also, I think, a sense of what do we really have to lose in committing to the campaign? So we thought about the risks in terms of our resourcing and our reputation. We also knew that if the campaign had an adverse impact on our operational fundraising, we were fortunate that the previous stewards of Stella had created sufficient reserves to cover any loss we might have on our operational front. We also had the prize funding secured for the next two years. So we had some time to raise this money. And we knew that we had a fantastic community of women around us who we could use to test and refine our ideas. They were really our closest supporters who included obviously Paula. So with the 10th anniversary approaching, it was a question really of if not now, then when? So we were really buoyed by Melissa's enthusiasm and confident in her expertise. The board made what felt at the time like a really bold commitment to commit to the campaign. And I agree, it is slightly terrifying taking on a target such as $2 million in 10 months. But when we think about importance of leadership in this, what we were asking the board to do at that time was basically to give us three months. And in those three months, we were going to test quietly within the market if this was even possible. And also give us the runway to say, we're going to focus on endowment for the next year. If we don't achieve our operating, we can draw down from our reserves that, as you said, financially we've been very prudent and have built up over that time. But it is a bold leap of faith that the board, to their credit, all took. And at the end of that board meeting, I personally took an enormously deep breath and looked at the both of you and thought, oh my word, now we have to do it. Jack, what was your feeling at the end of that board meeting? I had two reactions almost simultaneously. And I stayed in those two experiences for weeks. And the first was that I couldn't do it. Like many women, I guess I experienced some imposter syndrome. 
And it felt beyond my skill set to raise this kind of money in this time frame. So my heart was pounding with that, the sense of, of whether or not I was up to the challenge. But then my second reaction was that I couldn't not do it. That was the kind of stronger drive. I do feel this deep belief in Stella. And as Karen said, the conditions were right to do this. There wouldn't be another time that we could attempt something so bold. So there was no question that I wanted to. And so I just had to let go of that first reaction about whether or not I was up to it and just go in with confidence and assume we would make it work. And that as part of that, we would learn so much. And yeah, as I say, I stayed in those two emotions for a long time. And it's only now on reflection that I feel like I can admit that. (laughs) Thank you, Jack. I think throughout this process, God, it's been so very, very exciting. But you see, we had a plan from the very beginning. We had a plan. As we said, our target was to secure the endowment for Stella to ensure that the prize was established in perpetuity, which required us raising $2 million in 10 months. So therefore, to do that, we wanted to embark upon a quiet, significant major gifts campaign to start off with. So the idea was for the first part of this strategy, we would really engage those the nearest and dearest to us that had significant financial capacity to make a significant philanthropic gift to basically test, see if there was appetite in the market. Second stage would be to go to family and friends, those who were supportive of Stella from the very beginning to give and consider giving more significantly perhaps than they have done to date. And then finally, because Stella is everybody's and deeply egalitarian, we would have a final grassroots campaign that we would be moving towards at the very tail end, assuming that we had got most of the funds through the other stages. But one fundamental part of this was the female-led philanthropy aspect. I spent some time when I was planning this with you guys, and it was to test and see how many other significant female-led philanthropy campaigns have been conducted in Australia. And as we increasingly found out, there were few. There were some. There were some really great women doing extraordinary things at leadership level, at board, at CEOs and philanthropic levels. But collectively owning this female-led philanthropy piece had yet to be done. And we were very boldly in that place. But the case, in my opinion, was the most compelling part. Now, Jack, could you tell us just a little bit about what the case was? What were we saying to our donors of why it was so important to support the campaign? For me, the most compelling part of this campaign and the thing that people responded to was this idea that if women's voices are disproportionately excluded from storytelling, then the Australian culture that we are building is unfair. It is not as inclusive and as rich as it should be. Some of the language I've just used there comes from the keynote speech that former Prime Minister Julia Gillard gave at our Stella Prize night in 2020. It's a message that resonated over and over again with people that women's voices belong in all parts of Australian society. And there's something beautiful in the way this campaign came together that Stella's focus on women's stories in the literary space connected with women's passions and impact in the philanthropic space. So in some ways, the case made itself. Women supporting women became just this catalyst of energy and really touched people. Now, let me bring in our next wonderful person in this mix. Paula McLean, patron of Stella, former deputy chair, and a person that was to go on and completely transform this campaign. After that July board meeting, Paula, you were one of our very first meetings that Karen and I had. We were in the deep thick of lockdown in both Sydney and in Melbourne, and it was a Zoom call where we first shared this vision. Can I ask you first, why Stella? Why were you connected to it? Well, for me, Stella 
took on huge importance in 2012 when I first heard that this prize was going to be established. I was a feminist like Karen and like yourself, Melissa, and like Jacqueline. I was uh, a voracious reader my whole life. And I'd also been in publishing. I'd been a fiction editor. And so it resonated so strongly to me. I also loved the fact that it was a fearless incursion into the publishing industry to right or wrong. We had a group of women publishers, writers in Melbourne who just said, this can't go on. We have to change the culture of women's writing and we have to support them. That also resonated very, very strongly with me as a feminist. It was long overdue, and I wanted to be part of that kind of cultural change. So when we had that discussion with you, and Karen, I might come to you soon about what that type of discussion was, your first of many that would be had with donors throughout the Stella Forever campaign. But how did you react to the vision that we had for Stella Forever? Did you think it was possible? Very much so. I I always believed that there would be a great appetite to endow the Stella Prize. But it needed behind it a really sophisticated campaign. And I was beginning to see what that sophisticated campaign could be as you and Jacqueline and the board started to unfold what you had in mind. Karen, did you have any recollection from that very first meeting with Paula? One of our first conversations, how did you feel? How did you prepare yourself having not been in many conversations with philanthropists seeking funding and sharing vision prior to this? How was that experience for you? I knew Paula because uh, Paula had been deputy chair of Stella. So in a way for me, it was actually a perfect first conversation with a major supporter because it was someone that I knew and trusted and felt comfortable with. I also knew that Paula was extremely committed to Stella and was looking for us to step up and, and really make the commitment to raise the endowment so that she could support it and also to ensure that we would do so in a way that was both inspiring but prudent because there's a real weight of responsibility as the chair of an organisation to not just the organisation but to the people that are supporting us. So in going to that meeting, I guess I felt some trepidation. I didn't know what it would bring. I prepared for it to make sure that I could try and answer Paula's questions around you know, the management of the fund, what we were intending to do, what sort of commitments we were making in terms of time and resources to the campaign so that she could have faith in us. But at the same time, I knew that we you know, shared a common passion around women's writing. So that brought me some comfort in that conversation. Karen, you and I went around virtually and met with a, a number of wonderful donors to Stella over that next four weeks or so. And it was incredibly satisfying conversations about their engagement with Stella to date and the power of female-led philanthropy. It was incredibly energizing. And then we circled back to Paula about four or five weeks later. And here we are in October, and we wanted to check in with Paula to see what she'd been thinking after we shared that vision mere four weeks ago. Now, Paula, Could you tell us perhaps some of your thinking that came into that conversation and what that conversation transpired? I'd reached a point where I knew that I wanted to give significantly to endowment. I'd flagged that when I left the board, but I had never said what I thought that amount could be. But I also wanted to be very sure that this campaign would be built strongly around endowment. And once I knew that, I thought, I I can do this. But I also wasn't sure whether I wanted to break up this amount 
over a couple of years or give it in one lump sum. And it was at that Zoom meeting in October where I saw the enthusiasm. I really felt very comfortable that Stella was going to get behind this. And I thought, why wait? So I decided to simply come out and tell Melissa and Karen this was unplanned, but that I was going to tell them what I wanted to do. And um, what a moment it was. It was such fun, just wonderful to see how happy both of you were, but also to know that I was going to be able to to help you along. And I remember, uh, Melissa, you said, it's going to be a lot of work. And so I looked at you and I said, Melissa, I think I can help your work be a little bit easier. I'd like to come in with a million dollars as a match. It was a great moment. You hadn't actually made the decision of what number might be until it was during that call. What was it exactly that took place during that Zoom call that made you decide to pledge a million dollars? I've been toying with a couple of figures, as you can imagine. The million dollars was the the top range for me. I remember the exact moment and what happened. You said that you were sharing the campaign strategy with some of Stella's longtime donors and that it was resonating, that it was going to be hard, but that you were determined. I remember thinking, this is brave. They are really, really going for it. I decided not to wait any longer, and I decided that it would be the full amount. It was a great moment. Karen, how would you describe that moment? Uh, I I was just, uh, well, to begin with, speechless and really just overwhelmed by Paula's generosity and and really what it meant for the campaign and for Stella because it made what had felt up until that stage, I guess, a plan and ambition, but it made it seem so much more real. And I was really inspired by Paula's faith in us in making that commitment and what was ahead for us in raising that final $1 million to, to reach our goal. But yes, I really didn't know what to say to begin with. So it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. <laughs> and to be fair, I think there were a few tears, a few exclamations and wonderful, wonderful excitement. And to be clear, Paula had made that commitment, a pledge of $1 million with a very clear call to action for us to try and seek and to do our very best to secure a further $1 million in matching by the end of April when we would make the 10th anniversary prize announcement. And then what came next was really important for the organization as a whole, because that is an incredibly special moment that not many people get to be a part of when somebody says they're going to invest a million dollars in your organization. And so Paula came to our board meeting three days later to share the news. Paula, why was that important to you, sharing that information, that news with the board members? What was that like? Well, I think the three of us had decided back on the Friday at the, uh, at the Zoom meeting wouldn't it be wonderful to keep this quiet for the weekend, for the three of us to be able to enjoy seeing the reaction of the other board members? So that's what you did. You didn't tell anyone. And I was brought in um, to the beginning of the board meeting and came out and said what I wanted to do. I remember Jacqueline, you were quite speechless. Board member by board member, you know, tried to gather their thoughts and, and say lovely things. And I said, Jacqueline, what about you? And you really were quite speechless. And and then, of course, you found your voice and said some pretty wonderful things. Paula, that's so kind of you because I remember feeling speechless. I was looking at a Zoom meeting 
full of women from around the country and thinking one board member has a child in her lap. Paula's grandchildren were just visiting a weekend ago. Melissa has two daughters in the next room. Karen has teenage sons. This is the next generation and the generation beyond that who are going to benefit from the Stella Prize existing in perpetuity. And it felt it felt generational in a way. Yeah, I was somewhat overwhelmed by. <laughs> it was an extraordinary evening, but what it also meant that this campaign was now so very, very real. And there was a sense of responsibility not only to Stella, but to Paula herself that we had to make this work. And by this stage, we're now moving towards the end of October. We have a wonderful supporter who has offered to have a private dinner in her home, just 12 extraordinary women around a table, joined by Bernadette Brennan, who's talking about her new book, Leaping Into Waterfalls, the enigmatic Gillian Mears story. And it was at that dinner that we had a further conversations, just as Karen and Jack and I had been having with many philanthropists who were supporters of Stella, about the importance of endowing the Stella Forever campaign. As a result of that dinner and those types of quiet conversations raised over $100,000. So there we were entering towards the end of the year, $1.1 million in pledges secured, and then we went public. The day after the dinner, Caroline Overington had done an extraordinary story of Paula's gift, of which featured Paula's photo on the front page of The Australian. This gift is one of the largest gifts to Australian literature in Australia to date. I want to ask you a question about the importance of philanthropy and being public with your gift. And this was a very important part of the strategy for the Stella Forever Fund and sharing and celebrating this significant gift in the Australian and various other forms. Why was this important to you to make this gift public? And I appreciate there was some discomfort in this also. So can you just tell me a little bit about how you grappled with the discomfort? It was a grapple, <laughs> very much so. Um, I've really never been in the media before and had always been reasonably quiet about my philanthropy, but it was really important that I not be quiet this time. It wasn't going to help the match campaign at all by remaining anonymous. Both the media and the donors want to know who's behind a match. We knew we needed significant media to raise this kind of money in such a short period of time. The name and the face is key. For the media, there isn't much of a story otherwise. I had to learn to be brave about disclosing my own philanthropy. So how did it feel seeing your face in the paper talking about a million-dollar gift? It was confronting and exciting, very much so. Rob, my husband, went out and bought not one copy but five copies, and I was quite staggered to see the coverage that we had that day in The Australian. In the banner across the front of the page, it was on page three as a story, and there was a profile on the, the last page. So I don't think Stella had ever had that kind of coverage before. So I was tremendously excited for Stella and knew that this was going to, to help enormously in the campaign. Jack, what was the reaction at Stella headquarters after that article came out? Two things happened. One was across all of our communications channels, in emails, in text messages, on Twitter, everyone 
in the stellar universe sent their congratulations and their surprise. They all had their speechless, mouth open, smiling, entirely delighted and astounded by Paula's generosity. We got message after message coming in saying congratulations and what an extraordinary supporter you have in Paula. And then secondly, people stepped up, women stepped up and made donations immediately. Other than the article, and and you're right, Paula, that extraordinary call to action from Caroline, we hadn't done any um, communications with people saying yet that we wanted them to, to contribute to the campaign at that sort of grassroots level. And yet that happened over and over again. People made contributions to our bank account with, you know, beautiful notations saying, I cannot match Paula's contribution, but I match her enthusiasm. And my book club will be making a donation at our next meeting. And it just had that energy of, you know, that real stellar energy of collective contribution. And and we were often running in a very real way. It was a very exciting time from my perspective. It all became so very, very real. And it became far more than just this idea that we had conceived. What I was blown away by was this sense of ownership so many people had to Stella and to Stella Forever campaign success, which was really energizing. But here we are from a campaign perspective, the support of people in response to that article was wonderful. But in terms of dollar numbers, we were still a long way off. We still had approximately $800,000 to raise. And here we are, as everybody knows in Australia, we're easy into Christmas, easy into the summer period where everything goes very, very quiet. We had multiple proposals out. We had multiple meetings that we were going to be scheduling into the new year. By that stage, I think we had had over 40 meetings with donors and many second and third discussions, but we had as of yet no other sizable commitments made. The fundraising committee had weekly campaign whip meetings during the course of the campaign and included also our deputy chair, Claire Weevil-Platter, who was there for every step. Jack, we had so many balls in the air after we came back from that summer, early February, and yet no other significant gifts and a yawning $800,000 to raise with only a few months to go. How did you feel at that moment? I remember just reaching out to you and saying, is this normal? Does every campaign have this moment where it feels like you're not going to get there and you're very exposed and people know what you're trying to do and it might not happen? I remember spending a lot of those conversations about the various ways we might pivot. How might we use a new approach or a new strategy or introduce something new to the campaign? It felt like we might have a wobble, like there was a loss of nerves at that moment. You know, after every meeting, I would think we need one more piece to land and that will be energizing for the team working on it. But also it felt like so many of the philanthropists that we were having conversations with were waiting to see one other person step in next. And once it happened, it would have its momentum and the cards would fall. But it was a wobbly time. And it was also just February is right before we know what the long listed books for the annual Stellar Prize look like. And so there was also this moment of knowing that shortly we would also be talking about all of these extraordinary writers and that that would energize people. But it was not quite yet. And so it felt, yeah, as I say, a nerve wracking moment. It was a nerve wracking moment. One of those evenings that we had in February was a very special one with our deputy chair hosting another private dinner. And we had Michelle de Kresler talking about scary monsters and Paula was there and we were engaging with people talking about the campaign. 
And yet we still hadn't secured another significant gift. Paula, do you remember sitting at the end of that dinner on Claire's couch and you and I and Claire discussing what's next, what was possible, what was going to happen? How did you feel? Melissa, I was very excited because we'd had another wonderful literary dinner and a great group of women around the table. And many of them were potential new donors of capacity. I think I also bring to that experience the knowledge that donors can take quite a bit of time to make a decision, that you, you actually have to be patient with them. You'd sown all the seeds. You'd talked about the possibilities. You'd brought them along conversationally, but they still needed time to think about how much they wanted to give and what that would mean to them. I felt sitting on that sofa that we just had to wait. We just had to go the distance and see where we got to. And that is such a wise response, which is why it's so important to have a team of people involved. And to be clear, while Paula was our major donor, she was in the trenches with us, doing enormous amounts of hard work of advocating, thanking, and really energizing this campaign to the very end. And I think this is one of the challenges in a tight time-bound campaign such as this one that we had. By this stage, it was late February. We had eight weeks to go before we were going to make that deadline, and we had about $800,000 to raise. So maintaining confidence, energy, and patience was a very delicate balance. And the question was, was it possible? Were we going to be able to pull it off in time? To find out what happens next in the Stella Forever campaign, episode two is now available for you to stream on your podcasting platform. If you liked what you heard, take a moment to review this episode and subscribe so you don't miss any of the content ahead.